I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. Our guest today has an incredibly diverse background, a Naval Academy graduate, a Harvard MBA, was a leader in starting the Naval Foundation. Eric Rubin, after graduating and serving our country, attended Harvard and then joined Goldman Sachs in the Mergers and Acquisitions Division. Well-trained, moved his career into energy, into running a company, and then over to the National Football League, where he was strategic and given unusually difficult projects. After leaving the National Football League, he and John Collins, a former NFL employee, teamed together to form a SPAC. In our discussions, we'll talk about this new entrepreneurial venture uh, that Eric has begun and revisit some of the stories that has made him a unique and highly successful executive, Eric Rubman. Hey, welcome, friends. Really have an unusual guest, uh, a person who's been a, a really good friend, a real mentor to me, and has had an incredible career. Uh, of our guests, probably the most diverse background of all the people we've had a chance to meet with, Eric Rubin, Naval Academy graduate, a wrestler, and then had the opportunity after serving uh, to join one of the most prestigious financial firms in the world, in Goldman Sachs. And, and during that period of time, really developed certain skills that has allowed him to be successful moving forward. Ran the energy practice. And really, Eric, like to understand what that Goldman Sachs experience was like. Uh, in terms of how it helped train you and how it utilized your mind and the way you think. The Goldman Sachs Mergers and Acquisitions Department that I joined in 1987, it was an, a very elite group of people in a number of respects. One is they came from very different backgrounds. They looked different from one another. They had common qualities and traits, which were very important. They were hard workers. They were very team oriented. They informed themselves and took positions, but they did that when being open minded. And that's a very difficult thing to do to be informed and have a strong opinion, but at the same time be open minded. And as a consequence of that, they could debate things in a very vigorous way and come out with a point of view that everyone would then take up and charge off to the top of the hill. And so when I compare the Goldman Sachs merger department to 
elite groups that I've either been involved with, like the Fest's Tax Submarine World, or that I'm aware of, that department had those attributes. And I'll go on to say that at, in that era, within investment banking broadly, you saw those attributes. And that's a very valuable um, environment. It's a very, um, it's a tough environment, but it's an environment where you learn how to get information, process information, and then use that information to make, to reach really good judgments. So you moved into the, how did you move it, select the energy sector to move into? Well, I've had a career <laughs> um, really going back to ending up at the Naval Academy where I didn't, I haven't selected that many things, Jed. Things have selected me. I, you know, when I talk to young people on campuses, which I love to do, by the way, um, I always say serendipity is your friend. And the energy business, Peter Sachs, who, who, um, whose office I sat in front of when I was first grade junior, used to say an expert is defined as a person doing his or her second transaction in a particular industry. In energy and in sports, um, fairly early in my career, I got assigned to something that wasn't a very attractive assignment. And in, in sort of battling through that assignment, there were people within the firm in the energy business who asked for me to be assigned to a second transaction and then a third transaction. And when that happens, you begin to get responsibility more quickly because the person who's asking for you is doing so with confidence and therefore they're giving you more and more responsibility. So it just happened. And uh, when I was elected partner inside the merger department, shortly after I was given the opportunity to co-head the energy business worldwide. And, and then you make a decision to leave to join a, a company in Baltimore. Talk a little bit about that. Well, for better or worse, I wanted to run something. I wanted to have my hands on the steering wheel, so to speak. And I didn't want to depend on chance for too long a period of time to have that opportunity. I was elected partner at Goldman Sachs in 1996. And the firm became a public company a couple of years after that. And I looked around at my fellow partners of my um, rough tenure and a couple of class uh, partner classes in front of me, and I saw really, really terrific people, which was great. But then when I thought about how would I get the opportunity to run the place or even run a major division, I thought one of two things has to happen. Either I have to be a political infighter and somehow edge in front of people for something other than merit, or a lot of them have to get hit by a bus. Hmm. And I didn't like either of those two outcomes. I didn't like waiting around for things to happen or people to leave. And I didn't like the idea that I'd have to be a complete political infighter in order to get ahead fast. And so I decided to leave banking and go find something. And when I told my fellow partners I was leaving, one of them called me up and said, look, there's this opportunity in Baltimore. We at Goldman Sachs have made an investment. It happened that I knew the CEO. He was a Naval Academy graduate. And um, they said, if you're open-minded, let's start some discussions. So that's the way that happened. That, that found me. 
the Naval Academy found me, the Merger Department found me, the Energy Business found me, Constellation found me, the NFL found me, on and on. I mean, I, I wanted to do these things once the opportunities came up, but I, I didn't go searching for them. That first experience leaving Goldman and running something, what did you take away from that? I took away a lot in a very short period of time. Um, I jumped into something that I didn't fully understand, which included the balance sheet and the power structure. I played it too purely from a political standpoint. So there were some features of that company and there were some features of the management leadership that I didn't, re I really wasn't fully aware of when I got into it. So I recruited a small group of people um, because I was supposed to, to focus on a particular area inside that company that they were going to split off to become a new independent public company in the independent energy space. This is back in the early 2000s. When things started to go wrong and I was fixing them, it became apparent pretty quickly that, that um, I was out on a ledge. <laughs> and, uh, so I had, I had to make a choice. Do I keep fixing them at a fair amount of peril to me and my career there? Or do I back off and you know, focus on my perch? And uh, so I did what I learned um, from my dad and mom and from the Naval Academy, from the merger department, a bunch of other people. I did the right thing. And we focused on fixing things. And it was really ugly. And we got it fixed. But there was a power struggle. And I was on the outside. When the dust settled, I didn't want to be there anymore. So I left. So how did Paul Tagliabue, the commissioner of the NFL, find you? In 19... Let me think about this. It was the early 90s. And um, I, I was at Goldman Sachs. I was pretty junior. And one of my colleagues, unbeknownst to me, one of my colleagues uh, was um, diagnosed with cancer and had to get off all of his current assignments. And the person who was in charge of reallocating those things had a fairly easy task allocating many of them because he had some attractive assignments. And then he had two really, really difficult ugly assignments, if you will. Remember, this is the mid-90s, early 90s, um, early 90s, not mid-90s, and um, the world is different today. And so those two assignments were the defense against a hostile takeover by Enron, remember them? Oh, sure. <laughs> of Portland General, the utility. And Enron was a very popular company and no one wanted to oppose them. Uh, but I did, because um, I didn't like them. <laughs> I didn't like things they were doing. and. The second was to take over the sale process of the New England Patriots, which were a struggling franchise, yep. hadn't won in many years, terrible balance sheet, and um, it was difficult. And no one wanted to be opposing Enron, and no one wanted to work on sports deals back then. <laughs> but I took them both. As a consequence of the Patriots deal, I met people in the NFL. A couple of years later, I was working on the Amarata Hess energy business and Leon Hess died. He specified that the jets would be sold and that Goldman Sachs would handle it. So I was um, selected to handle that process as well. So by a number of transactions in that time frame, I got to know uh, Commissioner Tagliabue and 
all of the people who were at or near the top of the NFL. I got to know a number of the owners and got to know what it was like to advise them and to be in committees when you had owners expressing um, very strongly held points of view. And so that's a little bit of a trial by fire that um, that just, again, it just happened to me. And so I had those relationships and that, that insight. It gained your credibility, obviously. Yes. You know, credibility at a place like Goldman Sachs, credibility at a place like the NFL, credibility at a place like, um, you know, the inside certain parts of the military is not earned once it's earned over and over and over again. And, um, so yeah, I, I did, I did have the opportunity to work with people and got some credibility, but, um, you can't rest on those laurels and the NFL there's a lot of unusual aspects about working inside the NFL, but there's one thing about the NFL that, um, is really quite amazing which is it is ultimately all of the playing is the is the truest form of meritocracy you can find if you can't play you don't get on the field there are aspects to being involved at the nfl head office which are just like that you just got to keep at it and uh, you got to keep doing your best i mean you had some uh, some really important roles: strategy new ventures uh, I mean, you had you got saddled with things that had challenges to it. So we'll talk a little bit about the, what, what some of those experiences were like. Well, I loved those experiences. I loved getting new and different things. Been a hallmark of my career, and I think that um, it's not for everybody. But getting new learning curves and new experiences is very invigorating to me. I tried my best. And and Commissioner Tagliabue knew this, and Roger Goodell, who wasn't commissioner, knew it at the time, and some owners knew it at the time, that in going into the National Football League at the level I was going in, I went in as an executive vice president, and I went in with certain departments, which were pretty important. I also had independence. I had had career success. I had financial independence. And so there was there was absolutely nothing standing between me and giving my independent point of view, which I loved. It gave me a freedom to speak my mind. Consequently, at the NFL, whether it was Commissioner Tagliabue or then Commissioner Goodell, they would be comfortable giving me assignments or departments or tasks or problems to solve, knowing that I would come back with a point of view which was reasonably well-researched, strongly held, but an open mind. So it's kind of back to the Goldman Sachs merger department training. And I think that they both liked it. I mean, you can ask um, both of them yourself. I think they both liked it that in a meeting, if an owner at a committee or an owner's meeting asked me a question, I would give them the same answer that that I would give that owner or that committee the same answer that I would give to Commissioner Goodell or Commissioner Tagliabue if it was a private one-on-one meeting, if I could answer. And I think that they appreciated that. So if you think about all the different challenges and opportunities you had, is there one you feel the most proud of, the one that the most challenging that that you'd want to talk about? I think that I would have to go era by era 
because I don't, you know, when you're, when you're at a certain stage of your life or your career, the highs are high and the lows are low. Right. But then comparing those highs and lows 10 years later at a different stage, I think you can lose perspective. You know, at the end of the day, the things that I'm very proud of are things where choices had to be made. And when you have to make a choice or a judgment and it's based on a column of numbers, that's a factual result. That's, that's, a, that's a result that you can lean on by the analytics. And you have to reach a judgment or make a decision that's not purely supported by facts or analytics, but more intangible features. And or when you have to make a judgment about the right choice versus something which is a little less right or feels less right, those are the things that I'm most proud of. Um, challenges that were just hard versus challenges that things that you had no right to actually succeed and you succeeded. Those are, so I'll give you an example. When I was in my senior year at the Naval Academy, most of the the time, the midshipmen can make a choice based on their class rank about what they want to do after they graduate. You can go in the Marines, you can fly jets, you can fly helicopters, you can go on surface ships, you can go on submarines. In my class, for the first time, they directed people to interview for the nuclear engineering program. I had no business being a nuclear engineer. I was a 2-8 economics major with two, two varsity sports. And I was woefully unprepared for anything like nuclear engineering. But there I was at the interviews, um, and I got selected. How I got selected? By Admiral Rickover and his staff? I'll have, I have no idea. <laughs> Maybe powers of recall on my economics <laughs> courses. But, and then when I got to nuclear engineering school, um, the first day of class, the, the privately in a one-on-one, -on -one, the instructor basically said, look, don't be disruptive. And when you flunk out, I'll put a, put a good word in for you. Well, I didn't flunk out and it was hard. And so when I look back on that, I'm, you know, I'm proud of doing that because I had to do it and I was woefully unprepared and it was really hard. When I look at the, the things at Goldman Sachs where choices had to be made to turn down an opportunity or to tell a client that your best advice was to not do a transaction that the client wanted to do. You know, those things, that's very hard. Uh, going into a committee of National Football League owners and telling them that their sentiment to do X is not, is contrary to your advice. I mean, that's hard. Um, and I've done that a lot in my career. And it doesn't bother me. And But to single out one or two or three that are about which I'm the most proud. I don't know. I think that's a that's a that's a moment in time. I mean, people why people have been watching the Rams and the Chargers, and you had something to do with that movement. And that was that was one that I think in this era people can relate to the stadium, but don't understand all the things that were involved in making that come together. Well, that's a very good example. So I'm very proud of cracking the code because multiple people tried for decades. And then we put together a little SWAT team um, 
and and went into and around LA. But cracking the code was not easy. And what I mean by cracking the code is you, you didn't know the answer when you started. You didn't know that um, a particular site would get developed and a particular team would move. Would, and, and so you had to put some things together that created um, a momentum and a, and a flow so that it was it became inevitable. And and so I'm very proud about that, Jet. I'm very proud of cracking the code and figuring it out and getting those, getting that movement going. What I'm not proud of is the moves. I had a lot of anxiety. Anxiety is the wrong word. I just, I'm a football fan and I loved the fans. And I ran the department for years that did the production of um, Super Bowl and other events. Right, right. And I, I cared about the fans and I think people in the NFL office care about the fans and I think owners care about the fans. And so the last thing I want, I last thing I wanted was for the fans of St. Louis to be disappointed, the fans of Oakland to see their team leave, the fans of San Diego. Um, And so, but something had to happen and someone is going to be happy and someone's going to be unhappy. It's not as if, there's a choice to leave everything in the status quo because it won't all be okay. You have to do something. And so, yeah, I'm proud of cracking the code and I'm proud of running a process that I thought was um, fair and even handed to all parties, to all the clubs, to the participant clubs, to the cities who were trying to negotiate to keep their clubs proud of running what I think was a very, very fair process. but. I'm not proud that at the end of the day, we couldn't put transactions together in each one of those cities. You know, I, people see, and we've talked about all these high-level things, but I remember an incident at a Super Bowl where there was an outage, and you had become very hands-on. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about that experience? Yes, I am proud. I turned the lights back on in the Super Bowl. But you know what? My kids, my sons, they're now men, said, well, you know, at least you know how to turn on a light bulb. Turn <laughs> a light bulb. Um, well, the lights went out on the side. And I had my own sort of mental checklist. Um, if something like that happened that I would look to. Uh, one was, was anybody trying to get a hold of me? Uh, two, um, was, were there any, was there any other evidence of um, a problem? Uh, smoke or sirens. What was law enforcement doing? And that particular year, I ha- happened to be sitting near Commissioner Goodell, and he had some very significant government people. So there were Secret Service people around. So my last thing was I took a quick glance over the Secret Service agents to see whether they were rattled, and they weren't. So I thought, okay, got a power problem. And uh, I'll make a long story short. I ran up to control. There was no answer there. You know, a lot of people there. I didn't use elevators. In, when I would be responsible for the Super Bowl, I'd find all the stairways. I'd never get caught in an elevator, never get caught in line where every stairway was. So I went up. We couldn't figure it out from up there. And so I said, I'll go down to the power plant. And I got a, a, a man who was a part of security who was very big and knew the drill. And um, so we, he helped clear a path and off we went, climbed down all the stairs, got down into the, to the power area, which I had visited before, just in my work up to the Super Bowl. I, I, you know, I generally knew where things were. It was hectic. It was chaotic. 
And but we sorted through it and figured out there was a faulty breaker that could be over safely overridden. The the stadium management company made the decision based on that that logic that they would close the breaker. And if the if the breaker stayed closed and the lights came on, we'd keep going with the Super Bowl. <laughs> and we did. And yeah. so I I then went uh, to tell Commissioner Goodell. And I told you before, you, you can't rest on your laurels. So I found him and he was on his way down to the field because the game by that time was getting ready to end. And, uh, he, you know, he goes down to the field. And so there's just a few minutes left and um, right down the elevator and I'm telling him what's going on. And as he's walking out, uh, he turns to me and he says, I want you to guarantee me the lights won't go out again. And I said, uh, Commissioner, uh, I'm an engineer. I can't guarantee anything like that. But, you know, he had a look on his face like, you, you can't give me this guaranteed tournament. Uh-huh. Itself, right? You get the lights back on and Super Bowl is back on and it's still not good enough. But yes, that was, that was, that was quite a experience. Well, the other experience I remember with you happened at Brett Favre's last game in Green Bay. Uh-huh. They were playing for the championship. Yep. Uh, against the Giants, and the weather was as cold as it could be. I mean, it was like 10 degrees below zero. And you, instead of being in the, st- in the warm seats, took your children and decided you were going to experience what it was like to sit in those stands in that frigid weather. How did you hold up that day? Not as well as my sons, and not <laughs> as well as the Green Bay fans that we were sitting with. It was cold. <laughs> very cold. And um, I was dressed as a business person and did all my pregame stuff that I always did. And then, you know, put on everything I could and went and sat with my sons. And um, it was it was an amazing experience. My sons, I grew up a New York Giants fan, but couldn't express that as an employee. But um, one of my sons was a Giants fan. The other was a Ravens fan. And um we had a great time in those seats with the fans at the end of the game. So then I went back and did what I thought I should do at the, at the post game, which is not much, you know, I'm not running football operations or anything like that. So then I turn to my sons and say, okay, ready. We, we're going to get going as you guys all set. And um, one of them turned to me, my older son and, and said, dad, is there any way we could go down onto the field? And I said, sure. We went down to the field and um, they reached down and touched it. And I said, why why do you want to go to the field? They said, Dad, this is Lambeau Field. That's all they said. This is Lambeau Field. They just wanted to touch it. New York Giants fans, Baltimore Ravens fans, they wanted to touch Lambeau Field. Now, if that doesn't tell you what you need to know about fans and the enthusiasm, then nothing will, but that, and you see that expressed by sports fans respectfully all the time when they can touch the team, touch the field, touch a player. And I don't mean physically when they can wear the Jersey, be near the player, get an autograph, um, particularly for you young people it's it's magical so let's finish up with the entrepreneurial part of eric Grimm and what you've done 
uh, partnering with John Collins, who ran on location for the NFL, and how you've put the sports entertainment supergroup and, and where you are in that process. Help, help our audience understand what it is that you've done, because some may not be familiar with SPACs. It's kind of new. And you've kind of gone in online gaming and, and, and the like. So explain that a little bit, if you wouldn't mind. Well, a SPAC is, um, has some very, very complicated uh, technical aspects to it. But ultimately, the idea is quite simple. A person or a group of people like myself and like me and, and John Collins go to broad group of investors and say, put your money in a bank account and let us go find an investment opportunity that we would use that money to, to, to buy into. But when we find it, you get to vote whether it goes through. So they put their money up. So the money is sitting there in a bank account. So you can prove to the, the target investment that the money is there, but you still have to have enough enthusiasm of the people who put the money in there to get the vote. That's a SPAC. It happens to be publicly traded. It happens to have um, an aspect to it that if people want to get their money back, they can get their money back, um, which is very important. But that's a SPAC and special purpose acquisition corporation. And so John and I did that because we had some ideas about what might make attractive investments in the sports and entertainment space. And very importantly, we wanted to do something together of our own, as opposed to being an employee. When, when I left the National Football League after what I thought was a very good run, and I left things in what I thought was very good shape with good people running the departments that I used to run, I said, I'm never going to be an employee again. Now, I remember uh, that because we tried to recruit you and wasn't going to happen. You were emphatic about you wanted to do your own thing. I thought when I got out of the Navy, I would do my own thing. I thought uh -huh. when I went to Goldman Sachs, I'd be there too. You know, on and on and on. I tried to buy a bankrupt shipyard after I left Constellation. So I'm at a stage where um, that's very important to me. And uh, I recruited John and it's important to him. And we didn't, here we go again. We didn't find Supergroup. Supergroup found us. Uh, they had an advisor who knew me, and he called me up after the SPAC went public and raised the money and said, may I make an introduction? And um, so we are hopefully close to the uh, voting date and the closing date of a transaction where the SPAC would merge into Supergroup and the SPAC shareholders would become shareholders of Supergroup. Supergroup is a, is a quite large company projecting um, $350 million of EBITDA this year. It's um, globally scaled, has a very good management team. We have very good chemistry with the top executives. And um, John and I would continue as board members and as investors after the transaction closes. So we're, there's a lot of hard work and it was a lot of um, sales calls. Uh, during the pandemic, when everybody was working from home, made 65 sales calls to investors from a little um, outbuilding on my farm here with John. <laughs> so talk calls. about Supergroup in terms of what Supergroup is, so the audience understands that. 
Supergroup is a holding company for two major divisions. The first division is known as Betway and is a sports betting platform, um, which is available in quite a number of countries around the world and is beginning their entry into the United States through the acquisition of a company called Digital Gaming Corporation. Um, Betway is extremely well known in a number of places. Uh, for example, if you uh, watch the English Premier League or you watch cricket yes. or you watch horse racing or anything of that nature, uh, they have a lot of sponsorships with the NBA. Uh, they were in the NHL Stan Stanley Cup. So it's a, it's a quite powerful brand. And then they have an online uh, gaming, iGaming, casino games, if you will, um, company called Spin, which operates through a number of brands. And uh, it is 100% online. It is not actually a new company, new management team. Um, these guys um, built the company brick by brick, and they started it at the dawn of the online gaming industry 20 years ago. So they are not new kids on the block, other than a lot of people don't know their names. It's a very interesting um, platform because it never had bricks and mortar. It never had resort casinos. It never had the betting shops. It's always been online. And so the, the, the learnings, the experience inside um, Supergroup is very important when you think about the gaming industry, because the gaming industry is all, is all moving to the phone um, yes. all over the world. The way that you and I might have bet on sports when, when we were 25 or 35 or 45 55 is very different than the way people bet on sports today. And one of the primary differences is it's on the phone. Another primary difference is it can be play-by-play -play in game. And a third incredibly important difference is it's in many jurisdictions, it's now legal. So you don't have to participate in something that is uh, has risk from the standpoint of who's got your financial information and so forth and so on. And everybody bets on bets on sports, right? So, you know, there's an old saying: sports betting was invented about um, ten seconds after sports. The the NCAA March Madness pool is betting on sports. Twenty five cents on the golf course is betting on sports, and you don't have to bet a lot of money to enjoy the extra entertainment associated with making a small wager. And so many people do it that it's better for it to be efficient, available, and legal, and safe. And, and the other piece is that when you do bet, it gets you more engaged in what you, you, bet, you have bet on. No question. Just think of yourself. Yeah, you're a football and baseball, so let's talk to basketball player. I'm sure you played one-on-one -on -one with your son as he was growing up because he's a very fine basketball player, but somebody had to teach him. And in the beginning, when you played one-on-one, -on -one, uh, there was just father and son one-on-one -on -one is pretty intense, but if you bet a nickel on it or you bet, you know, who's going to get a Coca-Cola huh. or a Pepsi, I don't want to favor one or the other. Huh. It just, there was just a little bit more edge to it. And it's the same with your friend. So that intensity of the fan experience of touching Lambeau Field is made more entertaining and more intense uh, for some people when they have a little wager. It could be a hot dog, could be a nickel. Um, could be whatever, whatever you want. I'll say this, Eric. I mean, we've known each other for a long period of time. And uh, there are two things that I, I, I recognize as it relates to our relationship. Uh, number one, 
Uh, 10 years ago, when I was thinking about making a move from Spencer Stewart to Corn Ferry, the first person I called for advice was you. And, uh, you said to me, hey, you know, we're going to still support you. You go there, that's fine, which you you stood up and did. And the other thing, more important, is that uh, I had atrial fib, and you recommended a doctor to me that was incredible. And I still text him. He's responsive. I have never met a doctor that is as responsive and as professional as Dr. Meta. So I appreciate all you've done to help me both in my career and in my life. Let me uh, acknowledge that and also do a shout out. Thank you to Dr. Meta. I have done the Leadville 100 in Leadville, Colorado, which is 104 or 105 miles at high altitude in the mountains of Colorado. Most of it off-road, some of it hike a bike for, for most people, meaning you can't ride up it. And there's no way I would be doing that at any age, much less my 60s, without the skill of Dr. Meta. Well, uh, again, I appreciate you joining our audience. I wish you and uh, your family a happy holiday and uh, success getting, uh, getting this entrepreneurial venture through the, the finish line. Thanks, Jed. Great talking to you. Happy yeah. holidays.